You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. Did you see the Christmas decorations up? We set up the Christmas decorations at the Catherine House too. And I was noticing this week, and I was here yesterday when they were doing some of this. I've noticed, just looking at Christmas decorations, there are some decorations that are just nice to look at and they're pretty, but they don't communicate very much. Right? They just don't say much, they're just kind of nice. Then there are other decorations that clearly tell a Christmas story. So we have like a star up in our outside lights, <clears throat> and we have one on top of our tree, which reminds us about the star, the Magi followed to go and find and worship Jesus. And we have, um, we have various other things, angels, right, that remind us of the angels that are, that are uh, the hosts of heaven that appear to worship uh, Jesus when he's born in the manger, you know, and they show up saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors, right? These are the kinds of decorations we have. And of course, there's the nativity sets. How many of you have a nativity set? That's like trying to draw all of it together so we can focus our thoughts on the wonderful day and it's telling a story to draw our attention to Christmas. Okay, the best decorations, the very best ones, in my opinion, help us to focus on and meditate on verses like John Warren 14, that say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, or Matthew 1.23, these are all Christmassy type verses, see, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which translated, is God with us? But Christmas isn't the high point of the story, is it? No, we have a holiday for that. It's called Easter. Right? Easter is when Jesus went to the cross. He died for our sins in our place and bore the wrath of God. He was laid in a tomb, dead, and on the third day he rose again so that all who would believe in him could have eternal life and dwell with him forever. And I think it's good to remember this part of the story, the Easter part of the story, on Christmas. Now, maybe I'm an odd man out here, but... But we have uh, our stocking holders on our mantle are actually crosses, and then there's a stocking on them. We have a couple of cross ornaments on our Christmas tree. I just think it's good to remember that part of the story, to remember this baby came to, to, for a purpose, right? This is the, the bigger part of the story. Uh, but neither of these two events, Easter and Christmas, are the end of the story. It doesn't end with Christmas. It doesn't end with Easter. Sometimes we see at Christmas time crowns. We have a big, heavy, carved wooden one somewhere out there uh, to remind us that Jesus is the coming king. He's going to consummate his kingdom. He's going to come back and bring his people with him that we would dwell with him for eternity forever. Now, my house, for this purpose, we have this little door ornament, and uh, it kind of alludes to... Jesus' call in uh, Revelation 3.20. In that particular call, there is a letter that Jesus has, has sent to the church in Laodicea, and he's calling them to repent because they, and, and we too, have shut the door on Jesus. And so then he says in Revelation 3.20 to these worldly, very rich Laodiceans, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in uh, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So we have a reminder of the end of the story. right? And we have that at our house 
at Christmas time, just to kind of remind me of the whole story. But you know what decorations we don't see at Christmas? I haven't seen any Christmas decorations that draw our attention to the beginning of the redemption story. So I'm thinking about marketing some of these and, and putting them up for sale. I envision a terrified, nearly naked husband and wife crouched down, huddled in the trees, hiding, you know, arrested by the very voice of God awaiting their fate. That's what I, that's what I see for that deck. I don't think it's going to be a big seller. <laughs> but it would draw on the beginning of the story, it would specifically draw on Genesis 3, 8. So if you have your Bible and you would make your way there, I gave you this great big long introduction because we're starting a new series called Dwelt Among Us. And I wanted to, to just sort of highlight where we're headed with this series. This is the first verse in our series, Genesis 3.8. Let's go ahead and read God's word together. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is the first verse in our Christmas series. I know, kind of a weird one. Um, we're going to be here a bit, so keep your finger in it, but why don't we pray, and then we'll get back to this. Lord, as we look at your word, as we think about your redemptive history, as Lord, we see what it is that all of this is about from beginning even to end in this series, Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes and speak to us from these early pages in the book of Genesis. Help us to see your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see where we fit in this whole thing. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so why is Christmas a big deal? I mean, like, really get serious with the question. Why is Christmas a big deal? Why is it a big deal in the opening of the Gospels when we read about the Magi and the, the angels and the Nativity and the Emmanuel, the God with us, the Word become flesh? Why is all this so important? If you ask the world, most people would say, Various mixed answers, but it probably wouldn't come across as such a big deal. I'm not sure we think this is that much of a big deal at times. I fear we're a little bit too much like the Laodiceans, who are just enamored with wealth and stuff and status and influence, which is why some of our Christmas celebrations are focused on wealth and stuff and status and influence. Or... If it's not that we're worldly and focusing on those things, which I hope we're not, we might still make way too little of Christmas because we fail to see that we're just like those terrified, nearly naked people hiding from God. When we don't see the beginning, we fail to understand the rest of the Christmas story. It just becomes a nice story, and we don't understand the significance. We don't understand why it's such a big deal. And we need to realize it's about Jesus from start to finish, from beginning to end. So we're going to take some time to see the beginning of the story. So let's go back. Let's revisit Adam and Eve that we just read about, husband and wife hiding in fear. Let's look at this one more time. Uh, Genesis, we'll look at it a few times, but Genesis 3.8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
Okay, how did they get into this mess? And why are they hiding? If you're not familiar with the story, today is your day. Well, let's go ahead and set the scene. We're going to walk through this. God has created the garden. It's this wonderful, perfect place. He put the man in the garden, and from the man, he made woman. And he made the trees that they happen to be hiding in. That's the scene. Look at Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man that he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and, uh, and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By the way, if you're using one of those pew Bibles, we're on page two, like all the way at the beginning. Um, when we first see the man and his wife, when that is first introduced to us, it, uh, it was after God had made all the animals of the world and brought them to Adam to name and take a look at, but he couldn't find a suitable helpmate. And so then he brings woman to him from a rib. You're probably familiar with the story. And he brings him before Adam, and Adam says, Whoa, man, in Genesis 2.23, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. Okay, this is verse 23. Let's keep reading. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. Now hold on just a second. Did you notice what just happened? Verse 24 is commentary on the narrative. It's an outside perspective being broken into the story to provide us with something. Who is it? Why? When? What's going on with the outside commentary? Well, this is a book inspired by God, written by Moses. Quite a bit later than when the events actually happened. And at the command of God, Moses is telling this history, the book of Genesis, to the people in the exile as they've been wandering around in the wilderness. This will be really helpful to keep in mind in just a little bit. But let's go back. And keep reading where we left off, Genesis 25, 2.25. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Now we're going to see a very clear and specific reference again to the man and his wife in Genesis 3.8 in the text we're looking at. But when we get there, the circumstances are going to be very different. The situation has changed. Now they feel great shame. They're hiding and they're aware they're naked. What changed? Let's read on and find out. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. <clears throat> it says, Now, the serpent <clears throat> excuse me, was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. 
So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They saw they were naked. They saw there was a problem. But that's not why they were hiding from God. Look over back at Genesis 2, 16 and 17. This is why they were afraid. And also, incidentally, this is why Adam is held responsible for the first sin and not Eve, even though Eve was the first to eat. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat of it, excuse me, eat from it, you will certainly die. The command was from God, it was given to Adam, and it was expected to be obeyed. And Eve wasn't even created yet. God had commanded the man to obey. And the consequences for his disobedience was death. That's what God said. Which, this is an unknown thing to Adam. Think about that. He lives in a world where he has no idea what that even means. He doesn't know what the consequences are. But that shouldn't matter, right? We shouldn't need to know the why or all the little details about what would happen if we disobey God because we're expected to obey God. We're supposed to obey him and we know that what he has for us is good, right? So it shouldn't matter if we understand the why and the when and the how. I wonder when Moses brought this book of Genesis to the to the people of the exile, and he read this to them, and they heard uh, this little account. I wonder if that stung a little bit. I wonder what they thought when they heard this idea that they're just supposed to obey, and there's consequences to their disobedience, because those people in the exile, they really struggled to obey. If you've read that account, they are constantly grumbling, they're constantly having a problem, and they disobeyed a ton And so now they get this story and they go, oh, that's the problem. That's a a big deal. I wonder what they thought of that. Now, there's something else we need to see that I think they saw. And it was these little words, the sound of the Lord. they, They had heard the sound of the Lord, but that's not what sent them to hide. Okay, it wasn't like, I mean, the sound was what sent them to hide, but it's not like him walking around. They didn't hear the crunch, crunch, crunch of the ground as God was walking. They heard something else. If you've read the books of Moses, that's the, the five, first five books of the Bible, then you probably see the significance of the words, the sound of the Lord. It might be ringing some bells in your mind. The sound of the Lord God. We see this phrase come up again and again and again and again, or something that's very close to it. It's this reoccurring idea. In the Hebrew, it's kol Yahweh Elohim. And it's often translated in most of our Bibles, in other places, the voice of the Lord God. The voice of the Lord God. It's used as a reference over and over and over again about hearing God and obeying God. And isn't that what Jesus said his disciples were? My disciples are those who hear my voice and follow me. They hear and obey. I can't imagine that the exiles would have missed that reference. 
So for them, this wasn't just an interesting history account of how man and woman got started in the beginning of the earth. It was explaining the mess they were in and why. And it was explaining to them what God was doing, why he was leading them, why he was creating a people, why he was taking them to the promised land. Why the tabernacle? Eventually, why the temple? Why the promises of the one to come, the Messiah? Why? This was to help them understand that it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, and now they knew how humanity got into this mess, each and every one of us, disobedience. Next, notice that the consequence, so he expects obedience, but the consequence of disobedience is death. And we have a decent handle on death. I think most of us have had some familiarity. We have some idea what death is. But what did Adam think it was? And come to think of it, what do we really think God meant when he said, surely you will die? Well, Adam learned on that day. And the text actually shows us exactly what God meant. We don't have to guess and we don't have to speculate. Look with me over back to Genesis 3. I'm going to read 17 to the end of the chapter. This is, this is what happened after the conversation, after they had spoke. This is what Adam's death is. And he, God, said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. The man, and we think it stops there, but there's, there's much more here. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed a cherubim, which is like an angel, and a flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. That's what death is. That's what God meant when he said, surely you will die. It's a curse, and that curse is called death. Let's take a look at the various aspects of it. First of all, creation, the earth, became cursed, resulting in many things to include painful labor. Just to eat from the earth. It's painful work. It's difficult. Part of that is because there's thorns and thistles. But I think there's a lot more to labor that's not just thorns and thistles. That might be a little bit metaphoric for the other things that we have to deal with in the difficult work just to eat and get by in this world. Another part of this curse called death is just the sheer amount of work that would be required to eat bread. Did you see that? By the sweat of your brow, it says you'll eat bread. I mean, except when manna from God falls out of heaven and all the people have to do is walk right outside their tent and pick it up and eat it. Those people in exile, they, they had it great, right? No thorns, no thistles, no labor, no work, no sweat of their brow. It was a free gift. 
But the exile people still complained all the time, didn't they? They didn't see that blessing. And Jesus also used that manna as an illustration to show that he's the free gift. There's a free gift in him as Jesus is the bread of life. And so I wonder how they heard that. As they're hearing this labor, this sweat of your brow, and they're picking manna up off the ground and eating with no problem. Did they bless the Lord? Did they see the blessing from him? Or did they still grumble? Still another part of this curse is this man who was raised from dust, God's breath was breathed into him, will now return to dust from where he came. That wasn't, that wasn't his original position. He could have physically lived forever, but now his physical life will end. There was also this thing in Genesis 3.21 where animals had to die They had to shed their blood to provide the skins for their clothing. So animals that had nothing to do with all this were also punished. They were an atonement. Blood had to be shed to make atonement for Adam and Eve's shame and sin. And finally, and this is the very worst part of death, what God said would be death to mankind. It's that Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden. They were away from the blessed presence of God. His disobedience has now barred him from this intimate relationship, direct relationship with God. He is now separated because God cannot be in the presence of sin. And all of this, all of those things, encompass what we should understand about death. That's what God meant when he said, surely you will die. So it's no wonder they tried to hide. I mean, it's no wonder they, what do we do? What do we do? We don't have any good ideas, so we just hide, and we know it's not going to work. We know the Bible says that you can't hide from God, you can't run from God, right? Psalm 139, 7 through 8 asks and answers the question, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. The point, this is a poetic way of saying, he's everywhere. You're not getting away from him. Or remember when Jonah tried to flee to Tarshish? Yeah, I'm out of here. I'm going to go where God isn't. How did that go for him? So we know that's not going to work, right? But let's not be too hard on Adam and Eve. I mean, they had to do something. They, they, they tried to do something, and they tried to do exactly what we've probably all done too. How many of us have tried to hide in our sin or stay away from God because Maybe we don't feel worthy. We think we can't be in his presence. I know I've done that. I know I've done the exact same thing Adam and Eve have done. And I've learned that sin clouds the mind, makes us do irrational things, doesn't it? It makes us try to run and hide. I really like how Conrad Pelican said it. He said, quote, This is how sin confuses and deranges the mind. In despair... It fears the Lord and tries to flee from him whose justice it hates. And it seeks consolation in creatures, having lost the goodwill of the creator. We're just going to go to the mountains and find my peace there. I'm going to hide over here. I'm going to enjoy this creation over there. Martin Luther was a bit more blunt. He said it a little bit more directly. Here's how he said it. And I quote, What can be termed more horrible than to flee from God 
and desire to be hidden from him. Is it not the height of stupidity in the first place to attempt the impossible and try to avoid God whom they cannot avoid? In the second place, to attempt to avoid him in so stupid a way that they believe themselves safe among the trees when iron walls and huge masses of mountains could not save them. Luther lived in a little bit different time, didn't he? Like he could call his students and his congregants stupid. Um, now I get, technically he's calling Adam and Eve stupid because of their irrational thinking. And yet, when I look back on the times that I've sinned and I've tried to run from God and I've tried to hide from God, I realize Luther is right. I was stupid. I know some of you are probably already thinking about the email you're going to send me for using the word stupid. <laughs> and I welcome that, but I want to ask if you send me that email that you think of a better word, a more powerful word that rightly describes the reality of sin and the idea of running from the only one that can save us when eternal salvation or eternal damnation are on the line. I don't think there's a word in the English language that rightly captures our actions when we think it's better to run away from God than to God. We can't hide when we disobey God. We know that. We can't hide. We get and we deserve this death that we just read about, just like Adam and Eve. But there must be some hope here, right? If there was no hope here, you guys were like, why did I come this morning? Why would, why would Noah have written this, excuse me, why would Moses have written this book? If there's no hope, it'd be a very, very short story. It'd end pretty much right there. Maybe you'd have chapter four too, because then you'd have Cain killing Abel. End of story. Everything's horrible. There's no hope. And why in the world would we celebrate this beginning at Christmas? Or frankly, ever. Why would we ever celebrate this? And here's what I hope you're all asking. If I've, if I've trained you well, I hope the question that's in your mind is, where is Jesus in this text? Because we haven't seen that. I don't understand it. And how is Jesus and this a part of the Christmas story? Let's get back to the terrified man and his wife. Let's go back there. God now enters the conversation. Of course, he has no problem finding them because he knew where they were the entire time. He watched this whole thing go down. Let's read about the account. It picks up in verse 9. It's after the verse we've been reading. And it says, So the Lord God called out the man and said to him, Where are you? By the way, I'm going to interrupt for a second. This reminds me of so many conversations I've had with my children. It's not even funny. I know all the answers. I just want to hear them say the answers. I want to ask questions and have them go, I don't know. When down deep they know, I swear that's what's going on. So let's go back to this. Verse 9. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Of course, he knows all this. Did you eat from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? If God ever asks you a question like this, he knows the answer, so just say the truth. Adam's right response would have been, yep. But here's what Adam says, verse 12. The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit 
from the tree and I ate it. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. God's just going down the line. He's asking questions, but notice something. He does not play this game with the serpent. He doesn't ask him a question. He doesn't play the game. Look what he does. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And then verse 17 goes back to, he said to the man, and he basically declared death over the man. All the stuff we'd already read. You say, well, where's the hope in all that? Where is Jesus in that? First, here's some hope. Notice that before God punished the man and his wife, God punished the serpent. God put a curse on the serpent. And also notice that before God punished the man and his wife, he also, as part of the curse for the serpent, said what he said in Genesis 3.15. I, God, will put hostility between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This isn't just general hostility between Satan and creation. This isn't just general spiritual warfare, although that is included in this because of the work that Jesus is doing. This is actually about specific warfare. And it's about a specific person because it says he. Not they, he. He is the source and the cause of the hostility because all of his work in the world is gonna be directly hostile against all the work that the serpent is doing in the world. And eventually, he will crush the head of the serpent, killing him and putting a complete end to his work. He will win. He is Jesus. This is called the proto-evangel. This is the first evangelistic proclamation to the world. Now, only Adam and Eve were there to hear it, and they hadn't even heard the punishment yet but they heard the promise of salvation. Jesus is not only going to crush the head of the serpent. He is God's answer to the problem of the death that we just read about, all of it. He answers every bit of it. Genesis 3, 17 through 24, death, the whole thing. Jesus is the answer. Genesis 3, 15 is a promise of redemption. It's Jesus repairing what Adam broke. And then we continue to turn the pages, you know, on to three and four and five and on we go. And then we see the work that Jesus is doing in the redemption of God's created people. All of it. He's the promise of salvation. He's the provider. And we see that over and over and over again. Strike the rock, water comes out. Jesus is there, the provider. He's the better king to come who will be on the throne forever because he never dies. He's the perfect blood-shedding sacrifice to end all sacrifices as the blood atonement. He's the better tabernacle. He's the better temple. He's God 
dwelling among us. Genesis 3.15 is the promise of his coming and the promise of his victory. It's the proclamation of the whole story that is to come. Now, God could have just left us there in that situation. He could have left Adam there. Adam has kids. He could have left them there. He could have left their kids there. And every single one of them all the way to us could have been left in death, toiling, laboring, thorns, thistles, back to the dust from wherever we came, and ultimately no relationship with God. But God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, will not remain in that death. We won't stay there, but we'll have eternal life. He's pulling us up out of that. He's redeeming it. God gave Jesus in Genesis 3.15 and the rest of the entire Bible is the story of God's redemptive history. The whole thing is the fulfillment of that promise right there because Jesus is the beginning and the end. So what's the big deal about Christmas? What if we don't see ourselves like Adam and Eve? I'm like, what if we're that arrogant as to see ourselves somehow as way better situated than them? What if we didn't think we needed a savior? What if we could somehow ignore all that death stuff and just say, I'm good? Well, if that's the case, then fancy gifts get our attention at Christmas, don't they? The shinier, the better. And we post pictures for other people to affirm with likes because we find ourselves feeling good about you know, other people maybe being a little jealous about our Christmas, maybe being a little envious. Or maybe it's tradition. I've done this for years and years and years. Have you noticed all the Christmas movies are like remakes of old Christmas movies? And if you didn't have the tradition part of it, most of them aren't really that good. You got to know the first one to make the second one great because it's playing up on what? Nostalgia. If we don't have... Jesus, if we don't think we need Jesus, then it's gifts and nostalgia and tradition and family and, and just what we, this is the time I get to see my family. All of those things, while they can be good, they be ultimately become the centerpiece of Christmas and then Christmas becomes about nothing else. And while we might not say it openly, those things become the fig leaves that we sow to cover up our shame and our fear. And then we find ourselves hiding in our own Christmas trees. <laughs> but when we remember Genesis 3.8, and we see ourselves there, then Genesis 3.15, this promise changes everything. The promise of Jesus changes everything. It turns a terribly sad, horrific tragedy into a remarkable, wonderful Victory story. And now we see what Christmas is really about. It's a major step when Jesus left the kingdom at the right hand of his Father to enter into our reality as a humble, vulnerable little baby and the most humble of means. 
It's a major step to see God working to fulfill this promise. It's a major piece in the story because God entered flesh and dwelt among us to redeem us and to save us. Why? Why would he enter flesh as a baby and why would he live this this life? Well, because he had to live a perfect life, the life we didn't live. From start of his earthly life to the end. So from the moment he was born, or shall I say from the moment he was conceived, at least in the humanity, because he's lived forever, from that moment, Christmas and before, the Christmas story forward was a march to the cross, through the cross, through death, into the grave, out of the grave, ascending to the right hand of the Father, and then descending back to bring us to the kingdom forever. That's the story of Christmas. And we celebrate with this stuff the one step when the whole thing seems to be ramping up. And that's what we'll be looking at in this series. I'm excited for it. It goes from now all the way to Christmas Day. And by the way, we are having a service on Christmas Day. It's Sunday. We'll be here. I hope you'll join us. Jesus came into the world. We celebrated at Christmas because he came to dwell among us. Our king bringing his kingdom that we could be with him forever. We celebrate because the only hope that we have in this world is Jesus Christ from start to finish. That's why Christmas is such a big deal. That's why. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you would enter this world in the most humble, meager means. Thank you, Lord, that you would be willing to give your son. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't leave Adam and Eve in that place, but you left the garden too and went after them. Thank you for your redemptive working in all those who would come to you. And Lord, maybe even right now, You're stirring in the hearts of people who are far from you and you're drawing them to yourself. Thank you for that. Maybe some of us have been prodigal or or been rejecting you, Lord, and you're just saying, come. You're knocking on the door and saying, let's do this together. You're redeeming the horrors of death and disobedience. God, thank you that you would give us the opportunity to take this month to celebrate you coming into the world, but let us not miss the rest of the story, the beginning and the middle and the end. So God, thank you. Thank you for the free gift of salvation. Thank you for redemption. And Lord, for those of us who are still hiding and trying to run from you, Lord, don't stop coming after us. Come get us. Come ask, where are we? Bring us back to repentance. Restore us. Lord, because we don't want to stay hiding forever in the shame, and in the sin, Lord. We want to be with you as you dwell with us for eternity. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.